0: Well, now we continue with our series, The Story. And uh, we said that last week uh, with the book of Judges was a guy movie. And now we have a chick flick uh, this uh, particular week with the book of Ruth. Speaking of movies, I don't know if any of you have seen the movie The Son of God yet, but just uh, a very powerful film. And remember we said that we were praying to be number one in the nation after uh, the first weekend. That's what Hollywood Judges. Well, the latest info we've got is that it's neck and neck with the Liam Neeson film, uh, which is called Nonstop. So they're like neck and neck. Neck. that's the last number we've got. We're hoping for a late Sunday Christian surge from churches all across America. So if you're going to go see nonstop, put it off till next week and see Son of God instead. And uh, let's just, uh, it'd be really cool. I mean, it's cool, that it's neck and neck. Number one, number two, right in there. Uh, maybe it'll push past to number one. I thought what great sense of humor God would have. Tonight's the Academy Awards. And boy, some of the ones up for best picture are just Really awful films. I mean, you think of like the Wolf of, Wolf of Wall Street, you know. Did you know, I read this in Time Magazine, that it set a worldwide record for the highest number of F-words in a two-hour movie. 506 in a two-hour movie. 506 F-words in a two-hour movie. That is what we consider a nominee for best picture. And wouldn't it be just like God that as the awards are being given out, meanwhile, back at the ranch, Son of God is number one or number two in the nation. That would be uh, kind of cool. I know, it's, it's a silly little thing, but I kind of uh, get excited on that. By the Kimberly and I got a chance to see it on with our family on Friday night, and we had these special tickets that you got where you got to have a backstage pass with Jesus afterwards. It was really (laughs) very, very cool. And I, uh, you know, those are available actually to everybody. You get to hang out with the star of it during the week. I'm sorry, that was like funny in my head, but uh, uh, it just, these things uh, are the things that humor me that I share with you. The title of today's study is The Things We Do for Love. What a great story. It begins with a famine. It ends with a harvest. It starts with a funeral. It ends with a wedding. It's really an illustration of just a a very precious verse in the Bible. Uh, Psalm 30 verse 5. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And maybe that's why God invited you here this morning is because you're going through a period of weeping in your life. And my prayer for you is that you will be encouraged this morning. You were invited by the Holy Spirit to be at church, or you're watching online right now. You were invited here to hear this message. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy is going to come in the morning. And I pray that that morning comes very soon. And I pray that it even comes in your lifetime. But I can guarantee... That when you open your eyes in heaven on that great morning, after you die or after Christ returns, that you will look back over your life and say, weeping may have endured for a night, but joy has come in the morning. Because of Christ and his resurrection, there was weeping on Good Friday and Good Friday night and Saturday night. But then on resurrection morning, joy came in the morning. Uh, When you know that God's in control of your life, that's the theme of this series, that in the lower story, there may be weeping, there may be confusion, we may wonder what God is up to, but in the upper story, from God's perspective, and we walk by faith by the upper story, that weeping may endure for a night serving him, but if we walk with him and he orchestrates his purpose for our lives, that joy will come in the morning. Another theme in the book of Ruth is coincidences. And you know what coincidences are? They're God working anonymously. That's what a coincidence is. And we call them not coincidences, but God instances. And we're gonna see these throughout the book of Ruth where it says this just happened to be going on and this, she just happened to be here. But we know in the Christian life, those things are not coincidences. They are God instances. And he has his fingerprints over our life orchestrating things for his ultimate will and plan and purpose. Three opening observations about the story of Ruth. Verse 1 of chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilian. They were Ephraites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now, Ruth's story takes place during the time of the judges. Now, this is, this is interesting because chronologically in the Bible, it goes uh, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then 1 Samuel. I, I've only you, know, you tend to think, oh, well, Ruth happened after the time period of the judges that we studied last week and then before 1 Samuel. But actually, the story of Ruth is concurrent with the time of the judges. It was during the time of the judges. We believe it was during the judgeship of Gideon that we touched on briefly last Sunday, but in the story, you read the story of Gideon last week. And so it was actually during his judgeship that this took place. Here's the map of what went on. It takes place mainly in Bethlehem, where Jesus was born. And because there was a famine in the land, they leave Bethlehem, they go up through Jerusalem, through Jericho, they cross the Jordan River, and then they go in to enemy territory, arch enemies of Israel, the nation of Moab. Now, it says in Judges 21 verse 25, uh, this kind of summarizes the period of the Judges. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Everybody, they had no king, and so everybody did as they saw fit. We thought relativism is just for our day and age, where everybody does their own thing. Uh, Relativistic morality, make it up as you go. Whatever seems to be right at the time, no absolute objective truth, but instead just kind of make up your own thing as you go through life. Everyone doing as they see fit. This is as old as 3,200 years ago. There was no king. And when there's no king in our hearts, when there's no Jesus on the throne of our hearts, everyone does as they see fit. And when you read through the book of Judges, let me ask you how does that work out anyway? especially those last two or three chapters of Judges. It is just a mess. I mean, the whole story there where the, you know, the Levite just sordid stuff, where the Levite to keep himself from being raped by the townspeople pushes his, his wife out so they can abuse her, and then he, and then she dies and cuts her into pieces, sends it through Israel. It's just a mess. It's just a mess. And when there is no King Jesus on the throne of our hearts, it just becomes a mess. And maybe we get by for a while, but as that kingly influence begins to wane in our culture and in our society, we begin to see things we never thought we'd see. Does anybody want to say amen to that? Are you seeing stuff now that you never thought you'd see in America as as Jesus, no longer the king on the throne of people's hearts, and look what happens as everyone did as they saw fit. Now, in the midst of that, these are our heroes and our example. In the midst of this messed up culture are three heroes, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. And they are, are doing the right thing in the midst of everybody else doing their own thing. And that's what God's called us to do. To do the right thing in the midst of a culture that it's doing its own thing. And the irony is, is that Ruth is a Moabitess. And here, this person that is not part of God's people ends up doing the right thing in contrast to the majority of God's people in the nation of Israel that are doing their own thing. The story takes place primarily in Bethlehem, in Judah, as I said, the birthplace of Jesus. In the story, God again uses a famine to accomplish his purpose. Just like a couple of weeks ago, or a few weeks ago, we saw with Joseph, God used a famine for his ultimate purposes. God does the same thing here. Ruth from Moab returns to Bethlehem with Naomi. The famine in Judah drives Elimelech and his family to Moab. And as I mentioned, these were hardcore enemies of the Israelites. It's like going and living with Al-Qaeda. Uh, they were idol worshipers. We'll see a picture, we had it from last week, of the uh, idols that they had uh, there in, in, in Moab, the, the idols that they would have and that archaeologists have uncovered. And so um, uh, the, the idol worshiping and the enemies, hardcore enemies, there'd be a long term, there's that idol right there. Uh, there'd been a long term uh, hatred between or, or uh, wars going on between the Moabites and bad blood between the Moabites and the nation of Israel. Now, Limelech's sons, Melan and Killian, marry Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. Now, here's a little side note. But did you know that uh, Oprah Winfrey's mom actually wanted to name her for this biblical character, the sister-in-law of Ruth, wanted to name her Orpah, but it got misspelled on the birth certificate. And so she ended up Oprah instead of Orpah. Aren't you glad you came to church today to find out those <laughs> uh, little uh, factoids? Elimelech and his sons die, leaving the three women as widows. After 10 years goes by, 10 years they live in Moab. Now Naomi loses her husband and her two sons as well. Naomi returns to Bethlehem, but urges her daughters-in-law to stay in their own country of Moab. So here Ruth, this foreigner, will not stay in her home country of Moab. Now this was a scary thing for her. She sensed in Naomi that Naomi was following the one true God. And Ruth, in her heart, wanted to follow the one true God. And yet, it would mean leaving her extended family. Here she was, a widow, a young widow, uh, with nobody to uh, care for her, to support her in that culture and society. It would have been a very difficult position. But at least if she stayed in Moab, she'd be connected to her extended family and they'd be able to help her out financially and maybe even help her uh, get uh, remarried after she had lost the death of her husband. But she leaves all that behind to follow God. And maybe you relate to that. Maybe when you decided to follow Christ, it caused a disconnect in your extended family. Maybe your family thought you were crazy. Maybe there are people in your family that thought you'd gone off the deep end and, and you realized if you were to follow Jesus, it was gonna cause a disconnect between you and your immediate family or your extended family. And so you can identify with what Ruth is doing here. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people, that is the famine was over, by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. You know, it's, uh, this next passage is considered one of the most beautiful commitment passages in all the Bible. I, I use it at weddings a lot. It's one of probably my two or three favorite uh, wedding passages to use. If you've done to a wedding that I performed, I often use uh, this from the book of Ruth. And yet it's actually a statement of commitment from a daughter-in-law to her mother-in-law. And I, I tell you, one of the kind of the wonderful things about uh, this stage in life is to see how my daughter-in-law, Jessica, how she loves my wife, Kimberly. That's been a very precious thing. And then our future daughter-in-law, Natalia, to see how she loves Kimberly and how our two daughter-in-laws, one daughter-in-law, one daughter-in-law-to-be, how they, they love Kimberly as their mother-in-law. And so that's been a, a great thing to see. And we see that here in Ruth's relationship with her mother-in-law, Naomi, and yet it applies to all of our relationships separates you and me, when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Now, this is just a great reminder for our marriages as well, those of you that are married. just want to say a word of of, of challenge. Yesterday, we did the funeral service here for uh, Dottie Milhan, and she and her husband Jim had been married 55 years. And Sheila Rapp, uh, one of the people eulogizing her, said a beautiful thing. She said that Dottie had once said about her husband Jim, He's not perfect, but he's perfect for me. not that a great line? He, he's not perfect, she's not perfect, but he or she is perfect for me. Now, there's great power in that statement because what will happen is, here's what Satan will do to you. As soon as you get married, he will make you forget all the things that drew you to that person, and he will remind you every day of the things that irritate you and bug you to death about that person. I mean, we forget about it over time. I mean, every person, you've heard me say this a million times, every person is a half full glass. We're all combinations of 10 weaknesses and 10 strengths. And so, you know, when you get married, it was the, the focus is all on the full head of the glass, you know, full half, full half of the glass on it, on it, on it, on it. As soon as we get married, Satan begins to say, ignore the full half. Look at that empty half. Oh, is that an irritating habit? Oh, does that bug you to death? And so you forget about what drew you. I mean, when you first dated her, you loved it because she was so vivacious and talkative. And, and, and you just love the way she was so outgoing. Now she bugs you to death because she talks so much. <laughs> or he, when you first were dating, he was like the strong silent type. And he was the rock of your life. And now he drives you crazy because he never talks. And, and, and that's Satan that Satan at work us, help us to minimize what drew us to them and to maximize the empty half of that glass. And I tell you what helps you to conquer it is this right here, commitment of the will. You commit yourself, you get through that time to a deeper, stronger relationship in the end. Where you go, I will go, even though you bug me and I don't want to go there. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. That's what keeps you going. And you know another thing you'll find as you get through marriage? Is in the early part of our marriage, I used to think something like this. God, thank you for Kimberly's strengths. And Lord, I will tolerate her weaknesses. And, and maybe she was doing the same to me. And, but you know what you find over time? God is a good gift giver. He only gives perfect gifts. So she may not be perfect, but she must be perfect for me. And that doesn't mean half the gift is really awesome. I mean, half the gift is, you know, something great and the other half is a rattlesnake. That's not what that means, that you open up the package and on the right-hand side is my new favorite book and on the left-hand side is a rattlesnake. No, it's all good. And you will find as the years go by that God actually used the weaknesses of your spouse to shape you into the character of Jesus every bit as much, if not more, than the strengths of your spouse. It's all perfect for you. He or she may not be perfect, but they're perfect for you. And the thing that makes that work is when you have that commitment, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Now here, Naomi, whose name in the Hebrew means pleasant, uh, wants to be called Mara, which in the Hebrew means bitter because of life's hardships. And maybe you can identify with that here this morning, is that you say, you know, Glenn, I started off with so much hope in life. Life was pleasant. I had so many dreams. But now life has just smacked me around. And now it's becoming bitter. Don't call me Naomi Pleasant because my dreams have been disappointed. They've been dashed. I've been beaten up by life. And now I, my life is not pleasant. My life is, is bitter bitter because of its hardships. And I just want to say a word. You were invited here this morning by God to hear this. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. There's a harvest that's going to follow the famine. There's a wedding that's going to follow the the funeral. You know, when you you hang in there, God says, do not be weary in well-doing. Do you ever get tired of being good Don't get weary of well-doing because in due season, you will reap a harvest if you don't get up. You will close your eyes in this life and open your eyes to a harvest from your faithfulness to Christ. You will close your eyes in this life and there'll be a funeral, but you will open your eyes to the wedding feasts of the Lamb in heaven. Weeping may endure for a night. Bitterness may endure for a night, but joy, pleasant Naomi comes about in the morning. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley feast, the barley harvest, was just beginning. Oh, a coincidence. They just happen to get into town when harvest is happening. Is that a coincidence? Or is that a God instant? Now let's listen to Vicky and Suzanne as they portray Ruth and Naomi for us right now. Love is a hurricane in a blue sky. I didn't see it coming, never knew why. All the land. You guys. That's terrific. Thanks you guys. That was wonderful. Ruth meets Boaz and Boaz favors Ruth. As a poor widow, Ruth, the pagan foreigner, gleans in the fields of Boaz. Now, as a even more than in our own culture, as a young widow in another country, as an immigrant, she would have been just ripe for exploitation just very, very vulnerable. And yet uh, Boaz here in chapter two, verse nine, instructs his workers to not lay a hand on her. He says, don't lay a hand on her. Now this is an interesting Hebrew phrase, which means to hit, inflict injury, or have sexual relations. So he says, guys, hands off. Don't hit her. Don't be mean to her. Don't inflict injury and don't have sexual relations with her. And so he became her protector. He stepped in And he was a protector over her in this vulnerable situation. Now, because she was gleaning, it shows that Boaz was obeying two passages in the Bible. In the book of Leviticus and then in the book of Deuteronomy. Leviticus says, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over the vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen don't go over it a second time, don't pick up the grapes that have fallen, don't reap, uh, don't glean to the edges of your field. That's a very interesting biblical principle here, is what he's saying here is in your business dealings, don't squeeze every drop of profit out of that deal that you're doing. When you're selling your car when you're selling your house, when you're doing a business transaction, Nothing wrong with making money. The Bible's all for making money, and it's all about profit, and, you know, there's a lot of capitalism in the Bible, and so the Bible is very into that, and so many biblical principles there that encourage us to work hard and to to be wise and and to be seasoned on our approach financially, and yet the Bible also says, put a limit on that. Don't squeeze every drop of profit. You know, in the same way that the Bible says that if you tithe, 90% of your income with God's blessing on it is gonna go farther than 100% without God's blessing on it. In the same way God says in our business dealings, um, less profit, taking, not taking advantage of others, being fair to your employees, being fair to the other person in the transaction, being a good tipper, okay, over your meal, says doing that, with God's blessing on it, is going to go farther in your life than squeeze in every last drop of profit out of every situation that we're in. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. And he's going to add a third category in the Deuteronomy passage. Why do you do this? Because I am the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 24, when you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheath, do not go back to get it. Leave it, and he's going to mention three groups of people, and he's going to mention them three times. Leave it for the foreigner, the immigrant, the fatherless, uh, the orphan, and the widow. Okay, in that society, those were the three most vulnerable. We could insert in those plus any other category of vulnerable people. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Do you want God's blessing? Be generous to those in need. Be generous to those in your dealings. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. Remember, you used to be broke once too. Remember, you used to be a slave to debt. What does Proverbs say? The debtor is enslaved to the, uh, the the debtor is enslaved to the one that uh, that loans to him. Uh, That's in the Bible, in the book of Proverbs, That, that we used to be in that slavery. We know what it was like to be broke. So let's be generous with those that are in that situation right now. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this Now, Ruth is able to take advantage of this because Boaz is obeying these passages of Scripture. So she went out and entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, there's another coincidence, God instance. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz who was from the clan of Elimelech, which we're going to see in just a moment, is really important. Another God instance out of a coincidence. And God is doing those things in our lives all the time. When we're quiet enough, when we slow down enough to see God's fingerprints on our daily schedule, I'm telling you, you guys know I love what we call Christian apologetics. I love the things that demonstrate in an objective way the truthfulness of, of God's Word. I, I love things like fulfilled prophecy and archaeology and the historicity of Scripture and the scientific proofs for there being a creator God and a designer behind the design of the universe and, and the evidence for the resurrection and the evidence for miracles. I, I love all that stuff. But can I tell you something that proves to me there's a God every bit as much as those wonderful things is just seeing God at work every day when we're patient enough to spot it when it happens. I mean, you'll, you'll get up and after a couple of days and, and for some reason, Joe has been on your mind and you've just been thinking about Joe and where'd that come from? I haven't seen Joe for a while and it's a, it's a little bit random, but I've just kind of had Joe on my heart. Boy, that's kind of odd. And so after work, you run by the grocery store to pick up some bread and some milk and you walk into aisle four and there stands Joe. And you're like, Wow, that's really something. You go over to him, Joe... For some reason, God's just had you on, on my heart. What's going on anyway? He says, well, Glenn, you never believe it. It just came from the doctor's office. Or, you know, I got laid off from work last week. Or, man, I'm having a tough time in my marriage right now. And, and you're able to talk through that and listen a little bit. And, and maybe pray for him right there. Or make a promise to pray when you get back in your car once again. Or maybe you're even able to do some tangible help, you know. You, you hear they went through a financial difficulty. You're able to buy his groceries when you, when you see Joe. And you walk by and you get in your car and you're just like, God, you are so awesome. You orchestrated everything for me to re-put him on my heart and then he ran in. It's just such a, a phenomenal thing. But here's the problem. If I'm rushing through life, and never get quiet before God. And I'm sprinting through life. I, I think about Joe. Oh, yeah, Joe, Joe, Joe. And I, and I jump in, and I go in there. And, oh, there's Joe. Oh, okay. Hey, well, that's Joe. Well, God, I got to get home. Uh, milk, bread, jump in the car. And I'm like, oh, isn't that weird? I was thinking about Joe. And then I saw Joe. And God's up in heaven going, Arr! I worked everything to get you there. I held up a a green light, a little bit longer so Joe could get there earlier. And I backed up traffic on the 10 freeway to make you late into the grocery store. I did all of that. I mean, that's where thunder comes from. You ever wonder about that? That's where it comes from. Not true, but you know, it's just like God's up there going, ah, you know, and and, and we miss out on those God instances. And maybe God's got you here this morning because he wants to ask you, hey, who are you going to be a Boaz to this week? There's a Ruth out there that you're supposed to minister to. You haven't, this message is not going to be wasted. You've heard this to make us sensitive to the Ruth that we're going to run into. Could be male or female, young or old, but a Ruth that we're going to run into, and we're a Boaz, male or female, young or old, but we're going to be a Boaz to a Ruth because God challenged us this morning to be quiet enough and to be slowed down enough to see that time that God is going to orchestrate that. Now Boaz respects Ruth's character, courage and faith and favors her. Verse 10, at this she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you've done, may you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. There's a theme in scripture that Boaz is going to be a picture of Jesus and how when we share the Lord's Supper together, it's a reminder that we take a refuge under the wings of the cross Under the body of Christ given on the cross. His shed blood on the cross. That's where we find forgiveness. That's where we find security. That's where we find protection. And she has come under the wings of the God of Israel to take refuge there. And we have the same opportunity this morning as well. Now Ruth risked being rejected as a Moabite. This nation had oppressed God's people for 18 years. But Ruth still in spite of that hears from Boaz you are accepted. Who are you going to be a Boaz to this week? Maybe it'll just be a word of encouragement. Maybe it'll be a word of acceptance. But she hears from him. You are accepted. Now, because of a provision in God's law, Boaz, as a, in our translation, it's saying guardian redeemer. In other translations, it says a kinsman redeemer. Marries Ruth to carry on the family name of Elimelech. And you can read about that in Deuteronomy 25. But here, Boaz becomes an Old Testament picture of Jesus, and we have a number of these in the Old Testament. You know, the snake, lift, the bronze snake lifted up in the wilderness, and and the Ark of the Covenant, and all these different pictures of Jesus, foreshadowing early part in the story. Pictures, the Tabernacle, pictures of Jesus in the Old Testament, foreshadowing the coming of Jesus. And here's another one of them. An Old Testament picture of Jesus is Boaz as the kinsman. Redeemer or the guardian redeemer. It's from the Hebrew word goel, which means ones that redeems property. In the same way, uh, Jesus uh, provides for us. Uh, the The kinsman redeemer would provide an heir and a future uh, for the person who had died, for their family line to go on. And Jesus, as our guardian redeemer, provides a future for us. And the kinsman guardian redeemer would provide justice for the person, in the same way Jesus. Provides justice for us. Boaz risks his own inheritance in marrying Ruth. It costs him something. But Boaz and Ruth fall in love, get married, and they have a little boy by the name of Obed. It says in verse 13 So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. That's what we're going to do with the Lord's Supper in just a moment. We're going to remember and honor our guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons. Don't raise your hand if that's true for you, okay? Keep that to yourself. You got a daughter-in-law that's better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. It's really a grandson, but Naomi has a son. It's a son. It is a son to her. And they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David, the greatest king in israel's history this love story of boaz and ruth produces the great grandparents who have the great grandson by the name of king david it gets even better who says these genealogies are boring these ge- i usually think of genealogies as catch up time for bible reading programs that's what they are you know you get behind a few chapters oh genealogy boom i can catch up no look at them look at the details Ruth's name, along with another foreign woman's name, Rahab, we studied her with Dr. Nolte a couple of weeks ago, is in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now here's a clue. Remember we said that in the story there are going to be early clues that are going to work out to mean something in the end? Well, here we have these two non-Jewish, non-Israelite women in the genealogy of Jesus, which is a clue that Jesus is not going to be just the Messiah for the Jewish people. He's going to be for all of us. Anybody want to say amen to that? He's going to be for everybody. The Canaanite Rahab, as, as well as the Moabite uh, Ruth, and, and the Israelites, and the Jewish people, and the Gentiles as well. It gets even better. Matthew chapter 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. Skipping down to verse 5. You ever wonder why Boaz was willing to take this risk and, and reach out uh, to Ruth. I mean, think about it now. Boaz is the epitome of the establishment guy. He's the businessman. He's wealthy. He's part of the in crowd. He's got the reputation. He's the king of establishment. This is the man, okay? And and what's Ruth got? Absolutely nothing. Vulnerable to ex- exploitation. What makes him sensitive to her? Verse 5 of Matthew 1 Salmon, the father of Boaz, and Salmon, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz's grandmother was Rahab, the prostitute. And that made him sensitive to the needs of others. Do you have any quirks in your family tree? Do you have any bends in your family tree? And we tend to want to be ashamed of those and sweep those under the rug. No, God put those there so that you'd be sensitive to people that are broken around you. Have you provided any bends in your family tree? You know, you're scared to look at those genealogy things. They advertise them. Check out what's your past. Well, I don't know if I want to know or not, you know, and maybe you provided a few bends in the family tree. That's okay. Because you know what happens is God makes you more sensitive to the broken people, the roots of the world because of your brokenness. And this this Boaz, who had to grow up as the grandson of, of a prostitute from Canaan, he knew what it was like to be teased in the playground. And so he was sensitive to the vulnerable Moabitess woman gleaning in his fields. And then it gets even better. Verse 16, skipping ahead, in the genealogy, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. And they lived happily ever after. Ladies, have you forgiven me for last week with the judge's book? Have you forgiven me for that, you know, the spike in the head and the left-hander with the fat going over the blade? Uh, you know, yeah, you've forgiven me uh, for all that Uh, What a beautiful uh, chick flick to follow the guy movie of Judges. And here's the best part. This story is our story. And if you're here today, you're very welcome to share the Lord's Supper. You just need to know that the God of Ruth is your God. And that the Jesus of Scripture is your Jesus. You say, Glenn, I'm not sure if I've done that. Or how would I do that if I'd like to do it? On the back of your program." you'll see a simple outline of the three steps. It's as simple as A, B, C, and there's a little suggested prayer there, and there's nothing magical in the exact wording of that prayer. It just summarizes what the Bible says we need to say from the heart to receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior and become a part of God's family. And if you've prayed that prayer or something like it in the past, or if you'd like to pray it today, this could be your day, March 2nd, 2014 to become a part of God's family, and then to show that publicly, one of the earmarks of followers of Christ is on a regular basis, we take the bread, we take the cup as a way to remember and to honor our kinsman redeemer who risked it all so that we could be accepted into God's family and have the hope of heaven, the harvest to follow the famine, to have the wedding feast of the lamb, to follow the funeral. Let's take just a moment to prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper.